Holiday House Books for Young Readers, Peachtree Publishing Company, and Pixel and Ink present Jamie Pacton, author of The Vermilion Emporium, in conversation with editor Ashley Hearn. Hello, I'm Ashley Hearn, acquisitions editor at Peachtree Teen, and today's special guest for the guest book is Jamie Pacton. Jamie is an award-nominated young adult and middle-grade author who writes swoony, funny, magical books across genres, including the life in medieval times of Kit Sweetly and Lucky Girl. Her YA fantasy debut with Peachtree Teen, The Vermilion Emporium, a cozy, whimsical, romantic adventure about timeless love and deadly consequences, received two-starred reviews and is called A Heartfelt and Dazzling Triumph by Forward Reviews. It is on shelves now. Jamie, introduce yourself to everybody. Hello, I'm Jamie Pacton. I am happy to be here. Um, as you said, I write young adult and middle grade fantasy and contemporary novels. Um, so I'm so happy to be doing this podcast with you, my dear editor of all my books, actually, across two different houses. Um, yeah, what else do you need to know about me? I like video games. I like baking. I like nature. Um, and I love writing books and I love telling stories. I grew up, um, around the National Storytelling Center in East Tennessee. So I feel like stories are sort of just part of my, my everyday and my being and like the era. DNA. My DNA. Is that the books in your DNA? Yes, exactly. That's awesome. And I mean, so that's something we're going to talk a little bit about how the sausage is made here. Um, I guess one of the things that's interesting about our relationship is that we have worked on multiple books together and not just at Peachtree, but from my previous job at Page Street too, I edited your contemporary books at Page Street. And then in my move to Peachtree, um, started editing your fantasy as well. So we, we know each other a little bit now. We've got some history. We do. And that's one reason I dedicated the Vermilion Emporium to you in part, just because you've helped all my books come out into the world. My storytelling magician, as we were just talking about. Um, Yeah, truly, I wouldn't have a publishing career without you. So I'm very grateful. We have so many children together, Jamie. We do have many children together. And actually, I actually just thought about this. When I edit um, your next book, The Absinthe Underground, I will have edited more Jamie Pacton novels than any other author Ever. You'll be my most edited author at that point. So number four is, uh, yeah, I've never edited four books with somebody. So a distinction I will proudly carry. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about kind of the acquisitions history yeah. and journey for the Vermilion Emporium specifically, because um, it does have kind of a unique journey and a unique story there. Um, because we were already familiar with each other, um, having worked together at Page Street on your contemporary books. I don't know if you want to kind of take it away. I think you told it actually better than I did yesterday. So (laughs) I'd be happy to. And, you know, I was actually thinking about how we ended up with contemporary books together. Um, And the short story I'll tell this quick is that I think you put out a call for like medieval themed or Renaissance books. And it's just before I, I was in between agents. And I sent you Kit Sweetly, my first book, mm-hmm. and then it just kind of things happened, and I ended up getting an agent. And we went back, and we're like, Ashley, what do you think? I mean, so I think been- we we also like were a little connected through Pitch Wars, yeah, um, like yeah. we were both Pitch Wars mentors at the same time, and so we kind of had been buzzing around the same kind of author circles for a while. 
So like you, you were definitely somebody that I was familiar with. So like when I got your pitch for Kit Sweetly, I was like, oh, like I know Jamie. Yeah. (laughs) And then also you're from like, you live in Madison, Wisconsin. And I lived in Madison, Wisconsin for six years. And um, I still have family in the area. So like we just, we did have a lot of like kind of personal connections before we ever officially started working together in any capacity. But as we'll kind of get into, it's, it's not all about that. Sometimes it's like, that's always like a nice icing on the cake, but it still takes the right book in the right moment to, uh, to make a story that I can acquire and say yes to. So yeah, if you want to kind of take yeah. it away with a uh, vermilion specifically. Yeah. So I was just, I said all of that to say that like, we, you know, we knew each other, we moved in the same circles, but we didn't really know each other. And then we started working together. And then, so we did Kid Sweetly. We did Lucky Girl. And I think you left before we were still in developmental edits or something. And so I thought, okay, I've had this wonderful time with this amazing editor. Um, and then I went to, on to work with another amazing editor at Page Street, Lauren. Um, but then we were just like, okay, we're friends now, you know? And so we will read each other's books and critique each other's books. And because um, Ashley's a writer too. And um, we were doing that. And so I think that's how you first read Vermilion is in this informal context. Like I didn't even know what you were acquiring. I don't think the imprint was out at Peachtree yeah. yet, maybe? It was like right after I had left Peachtree, moved to Peachtree. We were, we both had manuscripts that we thought the pitches were interesting. So we're like, hey, like now that we're not editor and author, uh, why don't we just like exchange manuscripts as friends? <laughs> yeah. And so that was a great thing. And you had some great ideas. But then I don't know, Vermilion went on submission shortly after that um, or sometime in 20, I think. Yeah. 2020. Um, And (laughs) at some point um, it, you know, had some interest, some nibbles, but we weren't hearing anything. And then you came back to me and was like, Hey, so is that book available? (laughs) Yeah. And so, and then I think you reached out to my agent too. Mm. Um, And that's kind of the unofficial way. But I mean, the way you told it yesterday is that you, you know, had the perfect spot on your list for it. And I think that's such an important thing for people to know, too, because I know a lot of people who have written absolutely amazing books and editors have loved them, but they just haven't found the right sort of um, spot in the, you know, publishing catalog for that season or the next season, mm-hmm. um, which I think is an interesting thing. I'd love to hear more about that. Cause I know you and I have even talked about that with this new book and where it's falling. And mm-hmm. if you want to say anything about how you acquire, or we can just talk about Vermilion. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think it's, it's such a, I always get asked as an editor, like, what is it that makes you say yes? I think that might be the question that I get more than any other question and it is always this kind of strange alchemy of um, it's got to be something that I want to read 50 bajillion times before publication because I do read every single book multiple times before it actually hits the shelves. So it's got to be something that I love enough to want to do that. And then it also, I have to be able to see who the reader is for this book and have a plan for how to reach them. So um, like as I'm reading a book, a lot of times I, a, a marketing brain almost kicks in where I start seeing like, oh, like this is who is going to pick the book up. And these are the bloggers and influencers and outlets that 
will be able to reach and I know how to reach them this way and kind of a plan starts to form as I'm reading it. But then also, especially I think because I always worked for smaller houses with very boutique lists um, where we do carefully curate the books that we bring onto that list very heavily. Like we don't have a large selection of books. So the books that we have we pick very intentionally to fill certain spots. Like our mission at Peachtree Teen is that we want to acquire stories that inspire conversation and help teens kind of find their place within the ever-changing world around them. And we also want any YA reader, any teen reader to be able to come to our shelves and find the book that resonates with them, that find the book that find they can find the book that um that speaks to them, that they see themselves reflected in. And in order to achieve that mission, that means that we need to be acquiring a diverse cross-section of different experiences and voices and across genres um, and across um, different styles. So like, I'm always looking to have a list that reflects many different genre styles and voices, not just on the list at at large. So everything that we've ever published, like our entire Peach Routine catalog, but also on each individual season's list. So in for the for those who don't know, publishing typically works in three seasons. Different houses call them different things. The previous house that I worked for was a McMillian uh distributed by McMillan. They had winter, spring, fall. Now I work for a company that's distributed by PRH and they have spring, summer, fall. They're the same thing. They just call them different things. <laughs> so, which can get confusing for authors. They're like, oh, I'm in winter. And somebody's like, what's winter? I'm like, well, it's the same thing as our spring. So, um, so spring is like January through April. Summer is like May through August. And then fall is September through the end of the year. And so we publish a certain amount of books that for that season. And so for each season's list, I look to have kind of a broad range of different books. So for Vermilion Emporium was a fall 2022 title. Um, it was the only fantasy novel on that list. And so like for a given season, I try to not have one genre overloading that season. Um, I know for that season, the first book that I acquired was a contemporary YA. Um, and then the other book that was on that season, um, The Art of Insanity, is a book that my colleague Jonah edited, was also a contemporary YA. So I was really looking for something speculative to fill that third slot. And that was where, um, when I was kind of thinking about like, okay, what do we have on this list? What are some things that I could be looking for to really complement it? I had the Vermilion Emporium had been sitting in my brain at this point for like three or four months. And I just kept coming back to it. I just kept thinking about it. I just kept thinking about the characters. I just kept thinking about this magical curiosity shop and knowing that I like could see the reader for this book. And then the way that that list developed, there was just the perfect place for it. And that was when I reached out to Jamie's agent, Kate, being like, hey, is this still available? <laughs> Um, well, and so, that's yeah. an interesting thing too about publishing. 
is just the timing. Like it's not just yeah. the slot. It's I, I've learned that lesson again and again and again. Um, there is a good deal of luck and timing, and that's where that persistence and just continuing to write has to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so grateful you had that spot available. <laughs> yeah, there's so much that's uncontrollable about the process. Yeah. The only thing that you can control is what you're working on next. And I know that um, something that we talked a little bit about in um, kind of before um, official taping is um, like, what was it like to switch from writing contemporary to writing fantasy? But you actually started as a fantasy writer and then like contemporary was just what you happened to debut with. And so like for you, like coming back to fantasy is kind of like coming home, right? It is absolutely. And like what I tell people is, cause I get this question a lot too, is just that rather than a contemporary writer who has now written fantasy, I'm like, I'm a fantasy writer who like stumbled into contemporary. And <laughs> for some reason, cause I, I wrote my first contemporary novel um, after a couple different fantasy novels and then one in 2016, that was an especially like heavy feminist swords and horses angry book and I needed something lighter and I took my kid to medieval times and you know that story just arrived sort of fully formed in my head um and I went home and started writing what is still like the first page of that book um and I found a very like comfortable niche in, or niche in contemporary like it's a fun genre to write in um I especially love not having to develop contrived communication systems they can send texts or yeah, <laughs> they can use information by checking their phone you know rather than waiting for a bird to deliver <laughs> Um, but with that said, I, I love history. So I've got a master's in English and then I got a history. I almost have a degree in history. Um, and so I think a lot of my books start in like a historical tidbit or fun fact, and then either in fantasy, or I even bring this into some of my contemporary books, there's this sort of ongoing obsession either with history or, um, sort of historical things that inform the book. So it hasn't been too far of a leap for me, but I love that I found my way back to fantasy because I, this is my home. Absolutely. I was just driving today thinking like about a couple other fantasy ideas I have and how, you know, just delighted I am to be working in this um, area and how, oh, I've got so many ideas across a couple different genres that I'm excited to actually get on the page. Um, And yeah, I mean, I could, I could go on. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, the historical influences for the Vermilion Emporium, because yeah, I do know sure. you're a big history nerd, and I'm a big history nerd. And um, that's kind of something that we've talked about that makes the Vermilion Emporium so unique is the um, kind of the genesis of the story itself. So it's like we know kind of how it found its home at Peachtree, but how did it originally kind of become a, a, a nugget of thought in your brain? How yeah. did it come become on the page to begin with? Yeah, good question. Um, so like I said, in 2016, I'd written, I'd written a lot of like swords and horses and I just, I love, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan through and through. <laughs> I love that genre. I love writing in that genre. Um, but, you know, I, I had finished 2018, you know, New Year's, I was sitting by the fire. I had just finished The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. And I had read some other cozy type fantasies, but I had such a strong reaction as a reader to this book. Like it was partially because it was a magical evening and snow was falling and the fire was going. But I finished this book and I just went, huh, I would love to write something that like makes readers feel this like full of magic and whimsy and romance and adventure. 
Um, and it was a different type of fantasy than I had been working on. And I was so like captivated by it. So I just kind of put that in my mind as I would like to do something like this. I don't know what the book is. I just kind of know that. And then shortly thereafter, I read Kate Moore's The Radium Girls, the nonfiction book um, about the female dial painters who I think most people, many people know this story already, but I'll tell it quick. Um, you know, these were the girls who were painting the luminescent faces of watches and the hands of watches, but they were using radium. And so this was in a time when everyone thought radium was just fine. They put it in drinks, you know, they, they took shiny. Radium, shiny radium. Marie Curry carried around a bar of her beautiful radium in her pocket. They just didn't know. And those who did know weren't willing to like break capitalist systems in order to, you know, raise the alarm. So anyways, these poor girls were sitting there painting and they dip their brushes in a pot of radium. They paint. And then in order to make the tip of the brush um, more fine, they lick it or put it in their mouth, um, which had dire consequences. Um, not too long after. So anyways, I read the radium girls and there were a couple parts I was really interested in. Um, one, they talked about how the girls would go out at night covered in flecks of radium dust and they would shine like stars. And I couldn't get that image out of my head. Um, and then, so I tried writing this book as a historical novel, two different ideas at this point, there was the magical book I wanted to write. And then there was this historical radium girls book and just their lives end so tragically and they're in such, they suffer so much. I found I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it to my characters. I didn't want to engage with it in that way. Um, and so I didn't, I said, okay, let's make it a fantasy. Um, let's try something else and let's try it in a way where they can get a happy ending. Um, mm-hmm. and that was kind of my driving force. Um, as I started to think about this book and it kind of went into that other, okay, it's now part of this fantasy landscape. And so I did more research. I did more thinking. Um, and then the third sort of hit, well, second historical piece that came in was I was trying to figure out what could my girls be making that would, um, you know, be coveted and valuable, but also mm-hmm. cause them a great deal of um, stress, strain. And deceptively and, beautiful. <laughs> deceptively beautiful something. So I decided, I, I did some reading. I was working, um, I have a middle grade book about young Marco Polo <laughs> that I wrote years yeah. ago. So I know a lot about Venice and I'm like perpetually fascinated by Venice. And I, I was doing some research on something else and I stumbled across some tidbits about Venetian lace makers um, who were often teenage girls. And in the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, lace was like a form of currency because it took effort, it took time, and it took a great deal of money to actually have like beautiful lace. And so that's why we see in paintings like those big lace ruffs were kind of just like, <laughs> it's like bling in the 16th century. You know, it's it's a declaration of their wealth and their prestige. Anyways, so these Venetian lace makers were so sought after, they were often kidnapped into foreign courts, like the French court had lace makers. And so I read that and I was like, oh, <laughs> pay attention to this. And I said that goes into the book too. So there are a couple different eras of historical influence woven together um, as our girls figure out how to weave starlight lace and then the deadly consequences of doing so. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I I, I love so much of writing is um you kind of get these kind of nuggets of inspiration yeah. and then letting them marinate as you take in more information from various sources to kind of actually have a story come out of that. You can't just sit down and um, like develop a story instantly, like in one sitting, you kind of have to let it marinate a little bit and the little pieces come together until you form something that's like, Oh, here coherent. (laughs) Well, I think there's layers. I always think about this. Um, 
you know, I I'm in the idea stage for a couple books and then it'll come the drafting stage. And I tend to draft really sparsely when it comes to feelings and like descriptions. Yeah. <laughs> and my characters just walk into a room and feel happy. <laughs> like yeah. we'll get into all the nuances of what the room looks like and what, you know, why they're feeling or, um, but it, but those take time absolutely mm-hmm. to marinate. And so even with inspiration, like I do find some books, you know, arrive much, much more fully formed right. and some like Vermilion, you know, I describe it as like, I just had to weave these story threads together, which mm-hmm. is appropriate to the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was so, such wait, a so we, we can make weaving puns all day. <laughs> we totally could. Yeah. Um, maybe we should tell them about um, sort of like the development of this book, because the book that you got is in some ways very similar to what I turned mm-hmm. in at first or the book that's out now, um, yeah. but also wildly different. Yeah. Um, I, I, it was funny. I was go, I did go back and read my edit letter before, like to remind myself like, what, okay, what, what did we do on this book? Um, <laughs> like we didn't actually do a ton of plot heavy lifting. A lot of it was, was character work because the plot, and that's actually one of the things that drew me to Vermilion is that it's not an epic stakes fantasy. Um, it's a very character driven fantasy. And uh, I, for whatever reason, that's what I have been personally drawn to lately. Um, I've just subjectively been finding myself drawn to um, a, a more cozy fantasy reads, um, stories where the stakes are very internal, um, not necessarily about um, toppling kingdoms and like solving these epic quests, but about um, like finding yourself, finding love, finding acceptance, and that being the ultimate outcome, um, finding family. And I think I found a lot of those in Vermilion Emporium, which is why when I was looking back at our edits, they were very character-driven edits because the story, the most important part of the story are the characters' journeys. Yeah. And, you know, I will say something I've learned from working with you, and I tell people this all the time, especially I was just working with another writer, like when I, when I first started, I was a three act writer. <laughs> I'll never forget oh, the advice yeah. you gave me of like, no, 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 let's do it in four acts. And that changed everything from how I plan to how I think about stakes. Um, and yeah, I do think I bet I'm a little, I'm a little well known for that. Four yeah, it's great. Sure. Um, but it like, also it helps me make sure I've got a strong enough plot to hang things on. And then characters, like we can really get into it because I know where the beats are going to hit. And then I know how, you know, at the 50% mark after the midpoint, it's going to be a reaction for the next 20% of the book. And then we've got to figure something new out. And like, mm-hmm. it's a very helpful structure, but yeah, I mean, definitely Vermilion. We worked a lot on deepening characters. Like what you pushed me a lot. on, like, what does she want? Why does this hurt? You know, what are the consequences of wanting such a thing? And mm-hmm. um, it was challenging. It was great. And was making great. sure that those, the plot twists are tied to the yes. character moments, yes, like yes. tying. So like when, um, like when a character makes a decision, it is tied to that want and that wound. I know we talked about wants and wounds a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's but, huge. Like if we, if I could give any like advice to someone starting out with characters, it's like, think about that. What does your character want and what has hurt them? <laughs> and yeah. how do those two inform each other as well? Well, cause characters um, are never going to make a decision in a vacuum. It's always going to be informed by their desires and also their flaws um and that i think 
that's something that I routinely um, edit for is how can we tie the character's internal arc more closely with their external arc? Mm-hmm. So those things should be heavily related. What the character wants um, on the inside or how the character needs to develop should push the external arc. Um, and so a lot of times people are like, oh, my climax is falling flat or um, the, the resolution doesn't feel earned. A lot of times that's because um, the character didn't have their their deepest flaw wasn't tested in that climax. And in order for the outcome to feel earned, the like the number one flaw, the number one problem that the character was facing internally needs to be confronted in order for the resolution to happen. And so a lot of our edits with Vermilion Emporium were about setting those up along the way, like making sure that the characters have defined flaws and um, very clear wants so that in the resolution, all those things can be tested and then the outcome feels cozy and earned. Yeah. And, you know, I took a workshop recently. I think that's such good advice. Like (laughs) I'm trying to take notes over here in my brain, even though we've talked about this, but it's the lesson I have to learn every time I start because I am like plots kind of come more naturally to me mm-hmm. than characters, which is, you know, I'm working I think every, on that as a yeah, human every, every author has the thing that comes easy right. and the thing that comes hard for sure. Yeah. But I mean, it does take a certain degree of like self insight and insight into other people to be able to form characters that, you yeah. know, have some depth to them. But I took this romance writing workshop where I thought I was going to be learning like the 10. Oh, romance writers are the best at this. Are. Absolutely. Like, yeah, Absolutely. Like even like in the, in Vermilion, when I was editing for adding in banter, yeah. I went and read a bunch of Talia Hibbert and a bunch of romance because nobody does banter better than romance writers because no, they have such an understanding of their characters and what they would say. Yeah. But anyways, the thing that was like illuminating to me about romance is that, you know, we all know that we're working towards the happily ever after, whatever that is, they have their problems, they get together. But the significant thing was because you start each of them out with their own internal thing they need to, oh, maybe I need to go back to school or maybe I have to work through something with my family or some, some like internal problem. And the point is not that they get together and that fixes everything. The point is they solve their own internal problems. Exactly. And then they come together as like new humans with a better understandings of themselves. And that's why their happily ever after works out. And I was like, yeah, mind blown. Like, and that's, I mean, that's good for, you know, all sorts of stories too, but they have to figure out their own internal stuff, like getting together with the other person or, you know, getting the quest completed. That's not the thing that completes them, you know, yeah. and their character. Well, it's just, it's so realistic and true to life. It's like, yeah. you can't, you can't have a healthy relationship with others until you have a healthy relationship with yourself. Yeah. And that's essentially like what, that's so much of what romance writers do so well is mm-hmm. like having characters that, that that work through their their stuff and then that is what allows them to now be able to form an authentic true beautiful connection with somebody else yeah um and then especially in romance the other thing they do so well is have those characters flaws kind of juxtaposing each other like butting against each other so it's like this person is the perfect foil to this problem and this problem is the perfect foil to this person so it's yeah yeah they just set it up so organically and i'm like yeah if i could if i could like take YA fantasy writers and like give them a like romance writing like crash course i think oh my gosh it's it's such a fantastic way to look at internal growth craft and and how to grow yourself there. 
Well, and that's actually one thing I've been really trying to work on. <laughs> Hopefully you'll see that in the next book. We'll see, which is a little bit more of a romance driven fantasy in yeah. its own way. Um, but yeah, like these lessons are so important. And I'm actually finding that I, as I, as I story plan, I'm working real hard to understand the character's journey and like where they started, where they're going to end up emotionally um, mm. before I dive into drafting, which is frustrating because I'm impatient and I just want to get going. <laughs> and I know, I know where I'm going, um, but it means I'm going to end up with a much more rounded character from the beginning <laughs> if yeah. I take the time. But yeah, I think that that's like uh, a hugely yeah. important thing. Something else that I kind of wanted to talk about going back to um, like right book, right place, right time, all yeah. of those kind of publishing alchemy things that allow or that lead to the the yes, I want to buy this book is, um, and this may be getting a little bit more personal, but something that really drew me to Vermilion Emporium was that I read this book at a time in my life when my mental health was really struggling and I was having trouble um, like actually just sitting still with manuscripts. Um, so I just read submissions and I was kind of bouncing off of them. Um, because I like, I honestly cannot explain it. I just was distracted in my own mind. And when you're distracted in your own mind, it makes it very hard to sit still and read something. And, um, I think that that's kind of vermilion. It does have a, um, kind of a warmth to it at its core. The characters definitely go through some dark things and experience darkness but there is always this kind of tone or there's always this glimmer of hope and this tone of whimsy and this um you're you're kind of driven by the character's like goodness in a way (laughs) um that um i latched on very strongly to the character's desires to find love and hope and family amidst the darkness in the world that they were experiencing and it was it was like it was kind of that book that found me in my own darkest moment and um I think that that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring it to readers is I'm like I feel like there's a lot of us out there that need this kind of glimmer of hope book and um that like when I'm when I'm acquiring I'm always thinking about like what is this book going to do for people like what is this book going to mean to readers um like I love to read something that's just an escape don't get me wrong like escaping into a book is one of the best feelings in the world but I really truly believe that the books that stick with readers the ones that that last the books that like have lives 10, 20 years into the future are the books that um, really resonated with readers and moved them in some way and um, either changed their thinking or found them in a time when they needed um, to be picked up. And that was really what Vermilion did for me is it's like, oh, Ashley's sad. Here, have a spark of hope. And uh, and that's so good. (laughs) Because like, I think we were both going through like very dark periods in our lives when we were working on this book together. And I don't know, I think, I think you can kind of feel that through, through the book when you read it, that there was, 
an author and an editor pair both who like just wanted a spark of joy. (laughs) I think that's true. I mean, I don't talk much about it, but as you know, like, yeah, it was like some parts of this book started when I was in like a particularly different, difficult, like relationship time. And I just wanted like, that's (laughs) I wanted love to be easy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course, one of my children got sick and passed away. And like, while we were doing edits, which is an incredible, terrible experience, but like, I do, like, I knew you were going through things too. And like, we didn't really talk too much about what we did. I mean, you came to my house, but, um, but yeah, I do think consistently, like I would come back to this book and be like, everything is hard and terrible. Here is a spot, not just of escape, but where joy is possible, where magic is possible. Um, and I, I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad you feel like it gives that to readers. Cause I think so too. Like, I just wanted you to have a soft place to land as a reader. And I hope that, you know, the book did that, um, despite the twists and turns and some of, I got a question on TikTok the other day. They were like, does this book have a happy ending? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell you, but I will tell you, here's what I wanted to do with it. So, um, yeah. And I think we do sometimes need books like that. Um, I frequently, and that's one reason I read romance actually is because I need books that feel yeah. a little effervescent or a little like comforting and I'm not going to be worried about how it will all end up. So yeah, I'm glad Vermillion could do that. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it is strange that we were both in those sort of moments. Um, cause I do think that there's an edge of like sorrow through the book too, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, what, about reader responses to Vermilion Emporium. And, um, I guess kind of along this line is what really you want readers to take away from the book. Yeah. I mean, I get, you know, I get tagged in messages and things. Um, I think we talked about this yesterday. People as with all books, either love or hate, (laughs) Yeah. Um, and for very, you know, particular reasons. And I think sometimes we read books that I'm certainly doing this. Like, um, I'm reading a book now that I've read two other times, and this is the first time I've actually like gotten it. And I'm like, oh, I'm in a right, the right spot to read this book right now. But in general, people seem to be liking it. They seem to be, um, you know, finding some magic within the actual Vermilion Emporium, which I'm delighted about. Um, they like the characters and they, they seem to be connecting with this thing that we wanted, which is a message of, you know, hope and a cozy book to read, you know, on a winter's day, but also something you might remember. Hey, they connect with the cover too. Hey, they do love the cover. The cover is amazing. We should talk about the cover story. Good grief. Yeah. Um, my team at Peachtree is amazing when it comes to covers. Um, and you let me have a lot of like <laughs> input and thoughts on that. And then I, I love, I, I mean, I always want my authors to have input on their covers because you guys know your stories best. So, yeah, but then you like, you made it shiny and beautiful. And I get a lot of comments about that. Too. Oh, the shine. I'll never forget when uh, my, like, our production editor, like called me into her cubicle and was like, Hey, Ashley, you got to check out the shine. And I just like lost my mind the way that like when you move the, you like move the top cover and like the, uh, the feathers, like. Yes. stand out and disappear i'm like i lost lost my marbles <laughs> beautiful the back has got gold foil on it too and like oh it's yeah like, yeah we blinged it out we did what is it really that you want that you hope readers take away from the story yeah um i mean honestly i would love to have them feel that magic that i felt yeah. you know fireside um just they're full of romance and whimsy and magic and it has been an escape but it's also 
I don't know, made them think a little bit about the costs of magic, made them wonder about the radium girls. I do have, I have a friend who's a librarian and she read my book and then she read the radium girls and she's like, Oh my God, how could you recommend that? And I was like, well, I, I recommended it with, you know, like many, many cautions. Yeah. Um, she's like, it was great, but it was heartbreaking. I was like, I know that's why I had to write. That's why I had to give them a happy ending. Happier version um, because it's so hard. And um, yeah, so I would love, but, but mostly I would love for readers to want to return to this world and want to read the book again or tell someone about it and be like, this is a book that will make you feel good for even just for a little bit, you know? Well, speaking of returning to the world, <laughs> maybe we should talk a little bit about your next project. Yeah, let's do that. Absent Underground. Which I just sent you cover ideas for. I'm so excited. About I know. It. I've got them in my inbox. <laughs> I get invigorated every time I do it. Yeah, let's talk about the Absent Underground. So this is um, another YA fantasy. Um it is set in the same city and world as Vermilion, um, but it's not like a direct sequel. So it takes place, I think it's like 25 years. Like the times are a little squishy, but um, it's meant to take place in what would be like 1890s Paris. So the Belle Epoque and like, um, you know, that end of uh, the century um I feel like Victorian is, or I feel like Vermilion's a bit more Think like, of like world's fairs. <laughs> yeah. So, so absinthe um, is about two girls, Esme and Sybil, and they're one's an artist and one's a writer and they're friends and they're roommates. Um, and they live in this sort of like attic apartment with another roommate. And in order to survive, they steal posters. So it was inspired by my love of like the Toulouse-Lautrec posters um, and an exhibit I saw back in 2012 and the thing I didn't know was that um, until I saw this exhibit was, you know, they'd hang up these posters, um, which were, you know, advertising posters, but they were commissioning famous artists to do the posters. And so then um, if artists are doing the posters, you had collectors wanting them. So then you had thieves stealing them, which creates this whole economy, <laughs> which I love. Um, the art so thief reasons, economy. Yeah. But one of the reasons we have like, um, I mean, there's photographs of these posters, but it's because, you know, collectors were hiring thieves to steal these posters and then put them in their collections that then they were seen as like they were elevated from commercial works to art um anyways i love that i'm so fascinated by that um one of our girls is a poster thief she steals a poster for a club called the absinthe underground and um she and her other friend get pulled into this glittering world of clubs and artists and writers and they meet a real green fairy um since absinthe's called the green fairy and then that pulls them further into a world of magic magic and darkness um, and eventually fey and other such things. I remember like when I read the synopsis for it, I was like, <laughs> historical fey? Okay, I'm in. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, oh, like, that's kind of an, like the the process of um, working out a set because um, we signed Vermilion for a two book deal. Right. So uh, we did Vermilion and then we were figuring out what the second book was going to be. And you had a couple of ideas brewing and that was kind of where um, like market research had to come yeah. in because there were, there were a couple of ideas that were all incredible, but this was the one that I was like, Oh yeah. Like I, there, there's, I, I see the space on the shelf for this book. Um, like I see the reader, I see the spot, I see the niche. There's nothing quite like it out there right now. Um, like there are a lot of incredible Fay books, but like the way that this combines like Fay with history, with absinthe, with Belle Epoque. I'm like, yes. Oh, it's like and all my is... favorite things in one. <laughs> ah, yeah. So I cannot I wait. 
I will. And, you know, I'm so excited because I really did search for the story for like 10 years since that Mm -hmm. exhibit. I was like, I want to. And again, I thought I was going to write a historical about these two girls stealing posters. And it just all cracked open when I was like, oh, Green Fairy. Green Fairy. (laughs) Which is really um, funny that like the processes for how these ideas both came about were kind of similar where it's like that one little nugget was simmering until like that one, the the additional piece cracked it open. Yes. I'd like to thank my brain for like gifting me that at like two in the morning. This is kind of like my brand. If I can just say this real quick is like, I find something historical and then we figure out how to make it magical or we ask questions about it. And like, that's a very exciting space to work because there's a lot you can do, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, yeah, there's, there's, I think that's one of the draws of fantasy for people in general is that um, fantasy is rooted in reality to a large extent. It's like fantasy doesn't, fantasy isn't removed from reality. Fantasy shines a new light on reality in a lot of ways. I think that that's, that's honestly when fantasy at its best is when it's holding up a mirror um, to reflect our own world back at us. Um, then that it's like we we learn things about ourselves when they're rendered in a fantastical light and a fantastical lens. So it's like I think that's something that you do very well is take those nuggets of like our real history and what can we get out of them when we cast them in a fantasy light. Thanks. I couldn't do it without you. (laughs) Well, it's a joy and a pleasure to talk to you, Jamie, and it's a joy and a pleasure to work with you as well. Um, both on the Vermilion Emporium, which is book three of ours together and coming up soon on the Absinthe Underground, which again, will cement you as my most edited author. So, (laughs) Well, it's been my absolute pleasure and thank you for this amazing chat today. Yay. Um, So let's close out with um, how would you like to sign the guest book, the guest book podcast? I guess I would sign this in the way that I've been signing all of my books and it's my hope for readers. I would just say, I wish you so much magic. And I think I will close out with um, a reiteration of a a letter that I sent out to, um, to readers and reviewers for the Vermilion Emporium and that I want you to remember that above all the Vermilion Emporium is about shining light into the darkest spaces. And it's about healing when life seems shrouded with despair It's about discovering a spark of magic when you need it most and finding hope in a world that not unlike our own can sometimes feel hopeless. And more than anything, I wish for Quinta and Twain's story to bring you as much comfort as it brought me in my darkest moments, as I'm sure that we can all use comfort and hope in times like these. With that, thanks for listening to Jamie Packton on The Guest Book. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, podcast fans.